I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. Calves, uh, this time of year, after they've, uh, they get a little age on them, uh, they, they sort of frolic. Yes, they do. And They kick up their heels. Yeah, it's fun to watch. It certainly is. And that's one of the beauties, uh, and that's one of the things that I guess I consider a blessing um, with the way that we farm, in that we get to see animals doing what they are supposed to do mm-hmm. in a setting that provides not only good health to them and contentment, but actually actually helps restore the environment right. in which they live. You know, that whole idea that our commitment, Dave Corbett, our mutual commitment and that of so many who are listening to uh, Deep Roots Radio, to work in harmony with nature, it is a, an amazingly deep commitment. Some of us were born to it, okay? Mm-hmm. You, and I, you and I were not. Right. We're city kids who were uh, given the opportunity to farm. Mm-hmm. And that commitment and that exploration and appreciation of doing things in a way that is uh, not only maintains the health of the soil and the animal and people, but actually works to regenerate it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a decision and that's a learning experience that just keeps on happening. Um, and certainly that impulse to do things like that uh, combined in an unexpectedly wonderful way in a book that I have just been reading called In the Shadow of Green Man. Intriguing. And uh, the subtitle is My Journey from Poverty and Hunger to Food Security and Hope. Now, you may think, well, you know, this is going to be a technical work all about the pluses and minuses of doing things without herbicides and pesticides and working uh, with the seasons. And all I can tell you is that that's not what this is. Mm. This is a page turner. I couldn't put this thing down for two days. It is so well written. And it really is the story. uh, What is it? What can I call it? It's, It's the intertwined stories of a man's biography as influenced by the legends and stories of his childhood in the war-torn rainforests of Guatemala. Wow. Stories that helped him deal with his youth, you know, the, the, the exigencies of, of his youth, but also impressed upon him the need for balance in nature. And we have with us this morning <clears throat> to talk about the whys and wherefores of In the Shadow of Green Man, the author, Reginaldo Hazlitt Marroquin, known by his friends as Regi. Good morning, Regi. How are you? Good morning. It is a glorious day here in Northfield. Yes. And here we have 
<laughs> I just love I just love the intersection of our worlds today. Um, you are from Guatemala. You are an ag economist. Your degrees are in agronomy and international business administration. And you are a farmer. Yes, all, all of those three are correct. <laughs> and and a teacher, which is the thing that's so fortunate for all of us here. Hey, you're the chief strategy officer for the Main Street Project. Can you tell us a little bit about the Main Street Project so people have a context from which to, to understand our talk? Yes, we are a nonprofit in Northfield, Minnesota. We're dedicated to regenerative agriculture, and we approach it from a poultry-centered um, entry point. And uh, our uh, work right now includes organizing farms and organizing people so that we can start redeploying this industry in a way that regenerates, makes sense for the ecology, makes sense for the families who are engaging with small farms, workers, and so on. And also, most importantly, that it makes sense for the Midwest ecology in the context of the, you know, geoevolutionary blueprint that creation gave us in this space that is so productive and and so in important when we design these kinds of um, system level changes. You know, you've mentioned a couple of things there, he, which is um, kind of working with what the Midwest gives us, and certainly what the Midwest gives us is a certain kind of topography as well as the, the kind of climate that we have. So it, it's really dealing with uh, what so many people over the years have called the terroir, you know, what it is that we have and what would work best here. Reggie, but your background, you come to Minnesota from Guatemala and I have seen your systems, your, your um, agricultural systems charts, your food systems charts. I mean, there are a series of flow charts that talk about the interrelationships between what's happening in a field with the animals and their growth, the feed that goes into them, where revenues can be made when a system works together on a community level. In other words, it's not just about raising chickens, is it? It's about everything Absolutely. that goes into it. Exactly. So see, the, what I said is we approach the entry point of our organization into the food and agriculture system from a poultry center strategy. But it isn't about chickens. And the, the, um, the point of that statement is that you have to start with animals whenever we're going to talk about regenerative agriculture. Regener regenerating a landscape requires that we incorporate all of those fundamental elements of that specific blueprint we're in. In the Midwest in general, and you, you can look at primarily Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, and Minnesota, we are blessed with an abundance of high uh, fertile land, highly fertile land, and also amazing perennial crops. We started with poultry because from all of the livestock options we could start with, that's the one that allows us to engage the most amount of farmers, the most amount of workers that may want to get into farming. It has the, the lowest barrier of entry. It's the, it's the food of the poor, in other words. Mm -hmm. 
I grew up with it. Uh, it's, it's what got us through our childhood, uh, whether it was eggs or, or meat from the chickens. There is so much depth to what we can do with a chicken revolution, so to speak. And at the same time, we are incorporating perennial crops like hazelnuts, elderberries, you know, oaks, um, most of what you will find perennially in the Midwest. And as a result, not only do we get to deal with issues of, of um, you know, farm sur- far- small farm survival, poverty, the huge, huge unspoken issue, I mean, not unspoken, but rarely um, incorporated into new designs issue of the large amount of cheap labor primarily mm-hmm. supplied by immigrants and primarily supplied by Hispanics in the whole of the you know, trillion dollars of food and agriculture systems. And that those folks, for the most part, I identified with closely because I grew up in very similar conditions that forced them to leave their countries. I, I mean, I wasn't forced. I should make that clear. Um, I voluntarily left Guatemala and, 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 and came to the United States, and I did that uh, under all the legal schemes and everything mm-hmm. and, and so on, just, just to make clear for the audience. But the other thing is that we exploit these folks as a way to create this illusion that there is cheap food, among, among other things that we do, like polluting the air, the water, and, and the soil, and also, you know, corporate welfare, which comes from our taxpayer, uh, uh, the taxes we pay. And that's how we create this illusion that there is cheap food, right? But on the other hand, poultry can be a tremendous tool for if properly incorporated back into this landscape to redesign the way we look at these issues and to restructure the way people participate into in the food system, to restructure the way we grow poultry in the first place, you know, from going from confinement animal production, which is the dominant system, to a true, scalable, free-range uh, system where the landscape is the basis of the design. You know, mm-hmm. and by that, I mean poultry is a, is a jungle animal. We have perfect conditions in the Midwest to redesign that industry at a massive scale and at the same time to flip the, the injustice that is created today by the way that the, the industry owns and controls that part of our food system. So we're not talking about chickens. We're talking about engineering a new way to approach the ecological blueprint of our region, the social uh, uh, injustices and also the social reengineering of how we interact with each other, and as well as bringing back a highly economically um, uh, rewarding way of doing small farming. Right. And when you talk about systems, it is certainly all of those issues but it's more than the growing of the chicken because you also incorporate the marketing, the, um, the growing of the various feeds that are associated with it, and the distribution system as well. That is correct. There's, we need to separate. When we talk about systems, let's move away from the project-based thinking. <clears throat> the, the bottom line is that we, we're used to thinking of systems when we look at a farm. Now, a farm is not a system, not a, not a food and agriculture system anyway. It may be a, a microecological system, and that's all good. It may be a family support system, 
but a farm is not a food and agriculture system. The food and agriculture system is the conglomeration of all of the components that goes into ensuring that a market is served, that all the value-added processing, all of the infrastructure, financing, technical assistance, training, curriculum, all of that is lined up so that you can actually create a systematic approach of monitoring, verifying, tracking, and continuously improving all of the components that go into making each one of those pieces work, one of those pieces being the farm. Got it. Now, Regi, as you talk about this, certainly one of the things that I would have expected you to do was write a major work on the technical aspects of what it is that you're doing. Because how long have you been doing it now with the Main Street Project? Since 2007. Uh, All right. But, you know, this is, this is multi-generational for me. Right. And that's not what you decided to do. You did not decide to write your technical piece, and instead you wrote In the Shadow of Green Men, which is something that is totally different. Why did you decide to write this book, and how would you describe it? Here's the logic behind this. If you look at the challenges we have today, specifically the way we are destroying the planet in the name of feeding people, for example, the way we're destroying the rainforest in the name of economic development, the way we are destroying the Midwest land and water base in the name of progress, all of those things happen because we fundamentally don't have a lack of knowledge, technical skills on how to do things. What we have is a lack of capacity to, to apply wisdom to how we do things. Mm. And so that comes from a whole set of economic and social factors that have kind of created a culture where we don't look at, at, at stuff in the larger picture, in the long term, and so on and so forth. We are always looking for that short-term, you know, uh, pleasing sensation and, and so on. Now, when, we, when I was approached by, by uh, Fred Walters at Acres USA during the the, the founding meeting of Regeneration International in Costa Rica, um, after I did a quick presentation of our system, Fred came over and said, why don't you write a book about this? You know, we, are, we, we publish a lot of technical books. People like this kind of stuff. I'm sure a lot of people like to, to know how to raise poultry this way and so on and so forth. So I said, yes, let's do that. But... Uh, on the basis of my understanding of our culture and the reason we're not doing poultry right, it probably doesn't come from not knowing how to. It mostly comes from our inability to look at things the way I was just describing. Right. This long-term, applying wisdom to our knowledge. In fact, if you look at the world today, most of the destruction, all, everything from genetically modified organisms to, to the... Uh, confinement, um, uh, um, animal production units, those large ones in Nebraska, California, and so on. If you look at that, there is a lot of knowledge already applied to that. We got plenty of that. But why do we choose to do that? Because we are fundamentally forgetting uh, the the wisdom behind our purpose of living on this earth and so on. So what I said to Fred was, let's do the technical book. But first, let's establish 
why is that technical book important in the context of our humanity? And then after we understand that, and at least we have done enough of an effort to explain that, then let's write the technical book. And, and he thinks, and everybody agrees, that the technical book is probably going to sell way better than the In the Shadow of Green Men. But fundamentally, I couldn't just say those things and then go on and do the quick thing anyway. Mm-hmm. This is where the idea of the green In the Shadow of Green Men came to life as a precursor. It's like a prerequisite in our educational system. The prerequisite shouldn't be, you know, another technical training, but you know, our purpose in life, understanding who we are in, as human beings as part of this magnificently created, you know, world we live in, that should be a prerequisite in everything technical we do. Right. And I didn't want to make that mistake. That's our, yeah, our basic philosophy and core value. So, Rehi, I picked up your book. I started to read it. It was the most unexpected kind of reading <laughs> that, I, that I could have imagined opening up its, its, its uh, cover. And what I found was two things. One is your kind of biography to date. The other was the telling of the story of Green Man. This, uh, and, and it was a, a parallel development in the book. So sometimes it, you would give the story of the Green Man and then you'd go to your biography. And you could see how those, these two things developed kind of in parallel, progressing along. In, in, in as briefly as, as a way as you can, Rehi, tell us who Green Man is and the role he played and these stories played in your life. So Green Man is, is a kind of an alter ego, is, is this fictional character that I created out of another traditional tale, El Sombrerón. Oh, El Duende. Hmm. Now, this is not um, not green, uh, the way I created it, but what rather was this story that the the, the older the, the elder would would tell around funerals and anywhere where there was a opportunity to tell a story. Um, my parents, you know, the neighbors and so on, would do that. And El Duende or El Sombrerón, as it's called, was this little creature that was so powerful, so influential in everything, and was, was a trickster. It, w- it was anything that you wanted it to be, and he knew so much about everything from, you know, I don't know even where to start. It was it's a circular thing. You can start anywhere, and, 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 and this duende will know it. In my head, that's it's not seven-year-old, eight-year-old, and so on growing up. That's what, what this person was. So I, I made it my own. But to me, it was this green man. Uh, it, it, it was it represented that person I wanted to be, um, strong of character and all of those things, knowledgeable about a lot of things, um, yet not a superhero-like. I, I never wanted to be understood that way. So it, it became my, my crutch, my anchor. I would go to green men for almost anything I couldn't understand, any struggle I was going through. Remember, this is in the middle of the Guatemalan Civil War. We, I lived in the, um, in, the, in the town where the largest military base of the country was based out of, and we were under constant pressure from all of those things associated with war. And so Greenman was that place 
I'll retreat to, to figure out what was going on, to explain the things that nobody will dare explain to me. And so now fast forward to that 1995 when, when my first child was born, I started telling them green men stories on a whole different context, you know, but it's still connected to those experiences. So green men lives in the forest now, in men's forest, can walk forever and not get out of it. Uh, there's very few people. He's the, he's the, not the king of the forest, but the, the, the respected authority in the forest because green men know so much and so on. And how he came to be is in the book, of course, and so on. But that's what green men is. And up to now, still my my guide. I mean, I didn't realize how much influence that whole thing had on me until I started to think, well, how do I write this 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 book that that I told Fred Walters I was going to write? And that was the first thing that came to my mind. I have to do that, you know. And so the reason it's alternating in the book is because that's how my life evolved. It was an alternation between the imagination that had to keep me moving in, the, in those conditions. And the reality that I still had to make it in the real world. You still had to make it in the real world, and you came to certain parts in your life where you had to make some pretty difficult choices. Um, one of those had to do with leaving your home in order to go to the agricultural school. That was a big decision. The other was once you had graduated from the school, you were offered a job that had to do with peddling uh, agri agricultural chemicals to farmers. And and you were, I think you, you sort of came to a, a uh, real watershed moment there. Explain kind of what the situation was and how the green man came into play. <clears throat> well, green man also ex was, was, was this thing that, uh, well, anyway, I went to green men whenever I was troubled, uh, confused. And what happened was, there was this gut feeling that what I was doing there was not correct, and, and I was being very successful, so I was being encouraged tremendously and treated like, a, like, like royalty by the company. And um, they knew that, you know, the, that the speed I was progressing on selling chemicals, it was going to make them quite a bit of money. And in the middle of all of that, you know, like if, I don't remember if it was a few weeks or maybe a month, but it wasn't really long after I started doing that work. My dad came to visit, and we were having lunch in this tiny table in this very small roadside um, eatery on the, in, in Chimaltenango above, above Cormala City. And I was telling him about all my successes, and and he was listening, of course, but he was looking at the table. He was never looking at me. And towards that whole process, one of the things that came to me was that there was something wrong with all of this, yet he wouldn't say anything. And he congratulated me at the end, and, and he said, the, you know, the only thing I would say is um, think about your life and remember that in our family for generations, we have, yes, been poor, but we have lived with honor and with a sense of uh, of." purity of sorts, not in the pure sense of the people have said purity, but in the sense of we are responsible individuals. And, and my goal for you guys was to get you to write and read so you would have knowledge to do everything we know how to do better. And when knowledge becomes a weapon of 
mass ecological destruction. I mean, he didn't say those words, but in, in, that's how I understood it. Uh, then uh, our, my, my life is it's a failure. He was talking about himself, right? Mm. And then he went away. I didn't really understand what he had said. I was thinking he was whatever, didn't have a clue and stuff. And, but, but then I went back to that inner voice, the green man, and started to process. And about a week later, I, I sort of woke up to the fact that uh, I was, uh, was going to waste my life that way. And so I just turned around and dropped it and went to volunteer at a project called Faith and Hope, you know, teaching high schoolers how to do organic agriculture. Hmm. And the rest is history. One of the things that uh, I found as I was reading Green Man uh, was that Green Man also encountered the ravages of nature out of balance, where if it went out of balance, all of a sudden uh, you might get fungus gone wild. Uh, a fire would destroy the forest as... Um, large companies came in to graze cattle. Um, and, and so the green man faced all of these things, and he was helped by his, his friend, the vulture, who was able to fly over the forests and see things on the larger scale. One of the things I guess a lot of us feel these days, Rehi, is that we are so small. How do we fight these huge systems? There are so many problems in the world. I'm reading from your book now. How could one person fix them? The systems he was a part of were so huge, and he was so tiny. What do we need to do? He found himself thinking, rich or poor, soldier or farmer. What do we need? Security, shelter, of course, but first, food. And so for me, that, ki that kind of, in a, in a very brief number of words, said, expressed what a lot of us are feeling right now who are really hoping to do many of the things that you're doing, Rehi, which is working towards regenerative agriculture. And one of the things that struck me then as I was reading further in the book was a paragraph towards the end on page 119. If you go to the last paragraph on that page, Rehi. Mm -hmm. And if you could read that one out loud. I have this dream ever since before a culture school Rehi started to set up a farm somewhere in the highlands with waterfalls, windmills, crops, and forests. It would be a place to learn a different way of growing food. One that does not kill anything, but is based on letting nature give all the life it can. In this farm, young people would come to learn so a new generation is raised that stops what we, we are doing to the world today. The other, the other thought that comes to mind is something that the green man said. I think it was to the vulture. Um, when, he, when the green man was realized that there was so much destruction around him, I think he was asked either by the vulture or the monkey, so what do you plan to do, slash out? How do you plan to fight back? And I'm, I'm wondering if you recall what his answer was. One, we can't go on fighting anything. Mm -hmm. This big system, this overwhelming power that it, it probably wants us to fight it because he knows we can't win that way. That's the words from Greenman. 
to ah. me anyway. Good. And the way to, to actually change things isn't by trying to change the, the system the way it, the, from where it exists, but rather from where we stand, from where we exist, from our own reality. That's the place we start. And that fight only drains us, burns us, all of that. Yet, at the end of the day, you can see that for as hard as we have fought, and that's the frustration of Greenman at that point, we don't win because the system keeps growing as the, the more we fight. And so it seems like we are pouring more gasoline on it because it learns more about our vulnerabilities as, as consumers, as people in need of food and all of that. And so the, the, the secret to that answer is really to understand ourselves where we are and to know that we may be small, but there is millions of us. And there is nothing small about millions of small ideas and small efforts. That's how we change this. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.